God, God helps those who help themselves. Well, is that, is that, is that, sometimes we think of that, we hear that phrase, we think, is that in the Bible? Um, and we think, well, no, well, maybe in the book of hesitations, possibly, but, <laughs> but sometimes we think, it's so close, we think, maybe. Um, but I was, I, was th- I thought of that because I was reading a note that's in the ESV study Bible that mentioned that. Um, if you need a study Bible, a side note, um, the ESV study Bible, it's a really great Bible. Um, it's really thick, but you can also get it on an app. So I'm sure if you look a little bit, you can find it. Um, it's a great resource. But it noted that. It was saying, it said that phrase, and then it noted that it is an ancient Greek saying, and not from Scripture. And what we see in this passage today is that Paul writes, he writes something pretty different from that. He writes that God helps the helpless. God helps the helpless. And then again, they go on to say that even more, he helps his enemies who have transgressed his holy law. So God helps his, his, the helpless and he helps enemies. He helps those who are dead in sin. Those who are, are dead. And we talked about that two weeks ago. That that was the bad news. We had bad news. And that we are all, apart from Christ, dead in sin. But God steps in. And he steps in different than maybe we think. We had an illustration of that of an EMT that has a defibrillator. Or are thinking of the one that we have in the back of the room. Where if you open it up and you pull a tab, it begins to give you directions of, of how to use that defibrillator. But if someone's heart had stopped and we take that defibrillator and put it next to them with the instructions running... They, they can't do it. They, they need someone to grab those paddles and awaken their hearts. And we are such that we are dead in our sins and we need new life in Christ. And we have good news, though, that breaks in here as we look at this passage. We have good news that breaks in today, that there's new life in Christ. So we get the good news today. And it begins even just with that reality that we have a new identity, our existence in Christ, there's new eternal life in him. And we see that in verses 4 through 5. And it just begins, even with those two words in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, and it says, but God. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins, going after the way of the world, following after the prince of the power of the air, and even after our own flesh, dead in sin. Not just sort of dead, but, but dead. And then it says, but God. God steps in. He is an actor in the midst of our deadness. Just recently at the Colorado Baptist meeting, there was a preacher, Brandon Washington, who came. And he, he preached on this passage, um, this whole chapter, actually. Really a lot on the second part. But he reminded us that, that contraction, but, what does it mean? It means often that it eliminates... It eliminates what comes before it to emphasize what comes after it. And that's what we see here. Eliminating what is before to emphasize what's coming after. And God comes in. He doesn't leave us alone. He doesn't leave us without hope. He doesn't leave us without a path forward. He doesn't leave us without rescue. He doesn't leave us without redemption. He doesn't leave us alone. But but God steps in. And it says in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were dead in sin, going our own way, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. He gives new life. We were dead, as in Romans 5, 8 says that 
God showed his love for us while we were yet sinners. We were enemies of God. He poured out his love for us in Christ, that Christ died for us. So, but God. And dad here also, dad, you just think of it. It does mean helpless. It does mean needy. It does mean empty. And I think of the, the life of Jesus Christ. As we look at the life of Jesus Christ, he again and again and again and again goes to those who are needy, those who are sick, those who are dying, those who are not just dying, but those who are dead. And he brings new life, those in need. So do we get it that we are those? We are also those. We are those in need. It's not about us um, helping ourselves, but God stepping in and helping the helpless when we need him. And he brings new life. He's made us alive together with Christ. He's granted us new eternal life and forgiveness in him. And it's what Paul's been talking about. He's already stated, kind of has spoken about this new life, even in that first chapter. Let me just remind us, if you don't mind just turning even a few pages in your Bible to Ephesians 3. And I'm just going to read some of these verses that just speak about that identity, that new life that we have in Christ. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose with which he set, with he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in, on earth. So we see this new life that we have in Christ. And if you've been part of our, our smaller DNA discipleship groups, we're going through the I am statements of Christ. And, and the first one we look at is, I am the bread of life. Just being reminded that Christ came in and said, I am the bread of life. And he says in John 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then later in verse 40, he says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So new life, eternal life. And this isn't just bad to good, but dead to alive, death to life. It's not about also cleaning ourselves up enough that God might possibly hear our prayer or listen to us. It's, it's not that of just power washing away our sin. This pastor, I, I got a power washer. I've always wanted one. I didn't get a big one. I have a small power washer, but I used to work at a, for a little bit during seminary at a warehouse a couple years, and, and they had a huge pressure washer. My boss said, be careful with this pressure washer. Don't let it hit your foot because it'll rip through your feet, your shoes. And I didn't have steel-toed shoes at but this is it about you can't power wash yourself enough to make yourself presentable before God. No, it's dead to life in Him. We come as those with dirty hands, and He offers new life, true life. 
in this life, it's that life that we are now chosen in him. We're adopted, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're, we've obtained an inheritance, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and all those things that we studied a few weeks back uh, that Paul prays that we'll know and we'll understand that hope that we have, the, the riches of his glorious inheritance that we have, and this immeasurable greatness of the power of Christ that we have. So, new life. This new life that changes everything where through the ages and even today where lives have been changed in such a way that people are willing to to face much suffering to follow Christ. And they recognize when they they have new life in Christ that where else would they go? I think of um, a story I just recently read in The Voice of the Martyrs. A story of a woman named Sanjana who lived or grew up born in, in Egypt, in northern Egypt. Let me just kind of look and just kind of look at her story. I think we're reminded what new life does and the reality of new life. Sanjana, she grew up in the area of Egypt where you had both Coptic Christians and Muslims. And she said that she was initially impressed in school by her Christian cla- classmates who humbly accepted beatings in class without complaint. And then she began to investigate and ask questions about Christ and Christianity and was pointed to a church and someone who began over a two-year period to share the gospel with her. She was given even a gospel of, of Matthew, but she would take that gospel and wrap it in a plastic bag and hide it in a hole in the ground to be able to then read it and then put it back because she knew that her family would not approve. And after a couple of years, she decided to follow Christ. She had new life in him, but her family thought she was crazy. And they didn't understand her decision, and she would not turn back from Christ. She would not turn away from Christ. And it says these things about her situation. It says, when her family saw that Sanjana was serious about her new faith, they challenged her. I believe in Jesus, Santana told them. Her father beat her again, and this time he tied her up and locked her in a room on the family compound. Santana spent the next three years in this room, half starved and beaten continually. She said, my father would start to beat me, she said, and when he had, he had got tired, my family members would take over. Uh, it was like a party. The beatings resulted in a broken arm and fracture of her neck and shoulder. And family members also used acid to try to remove a small cross tattoo that she had recently gotten on her forearm. For there, there if you want to go to the church to say that you're truly following Christ, they would often get, get a tattoo of a cross to show that they're a follower of Christ. And so they try to burn that off. And then finally, they decided to try the ultimate humiliation. Sanjana's father and brother brought in an imam to her room with the understanding that he had permission to rape her if she would not turn to Islam. Sanjana's pastor explains that the imam would have married her later to break her dignity. They wanted to destroy her, he said. And then she uh, later is able to escape from this oppression under her family. Um, but it, the story goes on, but she continues to follow Christ. She eventually goes to Cairo where she meets uh, a pastor who is supported by the voice of the martyrs and is able to, to put her, place her in a, a Christian home family, family in a, a house where they're able to take care of her. And later she 
meets and marries a Christian man, and the Lord continues. But she is willing to because she has this new life in Christ. She's willing to, to press through incredible suffering because she knows, where else will I go? Where else would I go? Because Jesus has the words of life. New life. And then we continue to see in this passage that new life flows out of the character of God. Maybe you've been thinking, there's a few things in chapter 2 that I'm missing, and you're right, or in this verse, in verse 4, I've got, there's some good stuff. Don't worry, we're going to hit it. But we see these things of the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God flowing out into new life in us, poured out upon us. So we see in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, he's rich in mercy, a God full of mercy. We learned last week that we are those deserving of judgment because of our sin, the wrath of God, but his full mercy is poured out upon us. And this idea of mercy does carry with it the idea of holding back deserved judgment, but it also carries with it the idea of compassion and pity upon those in need. The definition in the Strong's Concordance of this word for mercy is kindness and goodwill toward the miserable and the afflicted, joined with a desire to help them, a desire to help the afflicted. It's the mercy of God speaks of his mercy and compassion toward the helpless, to enemies, to us. And it's this mercy of God also that should well up in us and call us to love our enemies. It's that mercy of God that wells up in us that we should be so less offended than we often are by those who speak something that maybe just gets under our skin. But we recognize that mercy has been poured out upon us because we remember we were once dead. We didn't clean ourselves up first, that he came and poured out his mercy upon us. And it's, it's that mercy which is rich. There's this deep well of mercy of our God. It's been said before that there is an inexhaustible treasure of such mercy in the loving heart of God, an inexhaustible treasure of the mercy of God in his heart. And then we see continued, we see the love of God because of the great love with which he loved us. This is that word agape, the, the love of our God. And we see, and we've seen as we've looked in the Old Testament and studied in the, the New Testament, we've seen the love of God. And we've talked a lot about the steadfast love of the Lord in the Old Testament that Hebrew word of hesed, which carries love and mercy all bound in it. And we continue to have this theme of the love of God here. Remember that that hesed love that we see of the Lord God in the Old Testament is that as this stubborn, loyal, steadfast love that rests upon God and not dependent upon us. And, and this love continues, excuse me, continues to be that which God pours out upon us now. A drink of water real quick. And then we see the grace of God. And Paul's going to talk a lot about grace. So we're going to get a, a glimpse and then we'll, we'll dig in a little de bit deeper. But we see the grace of God in, in verse 5, verse 7, and verse 8. It's by the grace of God that we are, we are saved. And I think it was two weeks back or so, mentioned that definition of grace from one of the word study Bible that puts it this way. A favor done without expectation of return. The absolute free expression of the loving kindness of God to men, finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. 
It finds its only motive in the bounty and the benevolence of the giver, that is God. Unearned and unmerited favor. This is the grace of our God. And then we also see the kindness of God being spoken of in these in this passage. In verse 7, it speaks of the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. This kindness, this goodness, this gentleness, it shows us that our God, he's not unfeeling, he's not, it's not arbitrary, but it's intentional, it's kind, it's directed toward us. So we see this character of God flowing out and giving us new life, but we also see new life in our position that's in Christ now in verse 6. It says, and raised up, raised up with him, with Christ, and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So this idea, this truth that we, we are seated with Christ, we're identified with Christ, and it's almost hard to even take in our identity with Christ and that position that we have with him, that we've been united with him, and we have this new identity with him, this new position with him. I think of how we began this year. We talked about John 15, that abiding in Christ, where Christ said, abide in me and I in you, that there's this identity that Paul describes here, that, we've been a, that we are identified in, with Jesus in his death and his resurrection, his ascension, and now here even in his enthronement. So what is true about Christ is, is now true about us. We're united with him. There's a union with Christ in our eternity is secure with Jesus and his kingdom for all eternity. It's hard to, to fathom and understand even what Paul is saying here, I think. John Stott, he says it this way. He says, moreover, this talking about solidarity with Christ in his resurrection and exaltation is not a meaningless Christian mysticism. It bears witness to a living experience that Christ has given us, on the one hand, new life, with a sensitive awareness of the reality of God and a love for him and for his people, and on the other hand, new victory, with evil increasingly under our feet. We were dead, but we've been made spiritually alive and alert. We were captive, but have been enthroned. So you see this picture here. I can remember... Reading this passage as a young man um, and reading through this and during a time where I was wrestling with sin and temptation and just continually falling into sin and I was just wondering, how could this verse be true about me? How could God have rescued me and seated me with Christ? How could I be united with Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb? And I just thought, how? How could this be? And I, just, I got through these verses and just thinking, how is this possible? How could God do this? And then I get to verse 7 and I see he does this all out of grace. Verse 7, in following we see this new life by grace alone. So that in this coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We see that he awakens us from death to life and pours out his mercy and his kindness and his grace upon us so that he can, for all eternity, demonstrate his amazing grace and continue to pour it out it upon us. And it'll be such that there's just no doubt, there'll be no doubt through all eternity in the kingdom of God, of his mercy, of his grace, of his loving kindness poured out upon us, those 
those, those who are dead corpses spiritually made alive in him, there'll be no doubt. It'll be a little bit like today if we were to, to step into an NFL stadium of, of one of the, the different um, teams. I know the Broncos aren't playing today. They, they, they lost for us already, so we don't have to worry about if they're going to lose today. It's just done and done away with. I'm so thought maybe this was going to be a, a, anyway. So if you go into a stadium today and you went into Mile High, if they were having a game, you'd see Broncos stuff up everywhere. You'd still, well, I don't know why, but we'd still be wearing orange and blue. And, and it would be, you know, like, oh, this is, oh, I think this is a Broncos game. There's no doubt, but when we enter, when we are in the kingdom of Christ for all eternity, it'll be grace, mercy, kindness, loving kindness of our God. That hesed love where that word in Hebrews that we can't fully grasp will be like, oh, this is it um, for all eternity. That's why he rescues us even when we are those who continue to go back to our sin, that he continues to shepherd us and call us back and forgive us. In the verses 8 through 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul, he, he breaks down a little bit more of this grace thing, and he writes so we can understand this foundation. The grace is foundational, and often our hearts push against us. I think our, the pride of our hearts, the pride of life, we push against this fact that it is all of, by God's grace. We want to have a part in it. And we look at the world religions, and, and even sometimes in the church we, we push against this, and we want to make up rules and different things we have to follow in order to make ourselves right before God. And, and in other religions, w- the individual bears much of, if not all of the weight of making themselves righteous and acceptable before God. But here we see it's totally different. We can't be enough in, in ourselves. And even those who, who claim um, to be atheists, to reject God, there's still an effort to make yourself enough through what you're doing, that you can add up, that you can feel worthy, and you do works to do that. But here it's saying it's all of grace. It's unmerited favor poured out upon us. He loves us. He gives us grace that we are saved through faith. And we see that through faith in Christ. Paul's talked in verse 12 of chapter 1 of, that they'd placed their hope in Christ. In verse 13 of chapter 1, that when they heard of the truth, the gospel of our salvation, they believed in him and they placed their faith in Christ, the Son of God, fully man and fully God, who died for them. In their place, and as we read in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 1, in him we have redemption through the blood, his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Faith in Jesus, who by great power and might was raised from the dead, ascended, and is enthroned. Faith in Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, faith in him as our Lord and Savior. Faith accompanied also by turning from our old ways and turning from our sin and turning to Christ and and resting in him. Faith in him, saved by grace through faith in Christ. And again, it's not of our own doing. It's not of our own works. It doesn't originate in ourselves. It's not a following after our own heart, but Christ giving us a new heart by his grace. And it's a gift. It's a gift. And a couple illustrations, maybe one of these will be helpful, maybe one of them won't, but a couple 
illustrates this of grace in that gift. Um, it's a gift. It would be a little bit like a gift that we give our kids. Rachel just recently had her eighth birthday, and, and she wanted a hoverboard. And we got a good deal on a hoverboard, and it's bright pink and exciting. And um, So we gave that to her, but if, if last week or the week before, if we'd given that to her and said, man, here's your gift, and then said, by the way, um, your savings account, so we, we keep on, um, I have on my phone a little app that when they're given money or they do chores so that we keep track of how much money they have. I said, um, we want to give you this, but by the way, um, your saving account, it's empty. <laughs> we, you know, it's kind of give and take a little bit this year. Would that be a gift? Well, no, she just bought it. I just took it away from her. But the gift of grace to Christ, it is a true gift. It's not pulling out of our account. It's his righteousness placed upon us and Christ taking our sin upon himself. Or maybe another way of thinking about grace. is an illustration I heard years back by a pastor. And, and it's, it goes something like this. Say we were today out on, on Eisenhower and we were going down and we were going 15 over the speed limit, which never happened out there. But going 15 over and a police officer pulls you over and says, hey, you're going 15 over. i got to write you a ticket. Um, you're, you broke the law. I'm writing you this. It's way over. So he's writing that ticket out. He comes back, and he gives it to you, but he says, um, here's your ticket, but um, I'm going to pay all of the fees. Uh, I'm going to take care of it. You don't have to call in. You don't have to do anything. I'm taking care of all of it. It's done. It's paid for. But then he doesn't stop there, and he says, but... Also, I don't know why, but I, I'm going to write you into my will. You're going to be part of the inheritance. You're going to join in what my daughters and sons get. All of it. You're part of it. That's grace. That's how God has stepped in. He's forgiven us. He's paid the penalty and then said, hey, join in in all of the inheritance of the kingdom forever. You're brought in. Grace. So it's not result of works. It's not a wage. We don't earn it. It's a gift. All boasting is gone. So stop trying as well. Stop trying even now that you've been received as grace. Sometimes we still try to, in our own effort, make ourselves approved before God. Make sure we check off all the boxes this week that we might be able to stand before God. And even as we come to communion, we don't come. We come as those who are in need of repentance and a Savior. And as Matt Chandler, pastor, says... God doesn't love a future version of you. He loves you now. Adopted, brought in, sons and daughters of Jesus. Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has not been revealed through the appearing, but it is now, I'm sorry, now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel that he calls us in. And then also, he calls us also to be those who are his handiwork, his workmanship. Verse 10, that we have this new life as God's handiwork. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are God's workmanship. We are his handiwork. He is a potter and we are the clay and he's making something beautiful out of our lives. He has a plan for us that we get to take a part of. We get to take part in the work of God. We get to take part in his grace and his mercy and his loving kindness. We get to be a part of that. He calls us in and he has prepared work, good things for us. And we're not saved by works, but we're saved for good works. We're not saved by those works, but we're saved that, that works might flow out. It's that fruit of the tree. A tree um, produces fruit because it's a, a fruit tree. And it pushes out that fruit. And we push out those good works because God has done a work in us. But we're also called to be active, to obediently love, and to be part of what God is doing. And... To this means that our life, that it's not without purpose. It's not purposeless, but we have great purpose. And we're created by God to do some amazing, cool things that he has prepared for us. And often, though, often, though, the things that he's called us to are small, overlooked, faithful things that we do through a lifetime. Um, sometimes they might be famous, fast, and radical, but more often than not, they are those faithful small things over a long period of time of our life that God calls us to. And he calls us to love and to love one another and, and to be part of the body of Christ where we can love and serve and then love and serve together the community. One, a, a quote that I'm sure I've shared before from one of my favorite books on pastoring called The Imperfect Pastor by Zach Eswine. He just talks about pastoring and, and shepherding and ministry and says, more often than not, it's about doing small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. And I think that's what we're all often called to, that we do small, overlooked things over a long period of time, just faithfully loving and caring and serving. And we're called to these things, and God's prepared them for us to do. As we look at this then today, our first question might be, well, have you experienced the new life that's in Jesus Christ? Do you recognize that you need to to be given new life, and maybe you do, you recognize that I've been dead in sin, wandering far from God, and my life is a mess, and all foundations that I try to build on my own are a wreck, all the enoughness I seek to do, and my own good works, it's just never enough, and you recognize that you need to give your life to Jesus Christ. And this morning, as Jesus had called to repent and believe, um, he calls you this morning, turn from yourself and your sin, and trust in him as your Lord and Savior. Repent and believe. So this morning, maybe you want to follow in faith and follow Christ. Uh, you can come talk with one of us, or you can grab the card and just mark, hey, I want to know more about following Christ. Or if you're listening online, just to, to reach out to us. We'd love to tell you how to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Know that new life. Maybe you've followed Christ, and you are his child. Be reminded that we can rest in the grace of God. That we can rest in the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And know that he is one who can, he forgives and he calls and he's faithful to forgive. And rest in the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. And then also be encouraged to be used by the Father as his handiwork. And ask him, and often we say not, not the question of what is your ministry, but who is your ministry? Who has the Lord called you to pour into right now in this church body and abroad? Who is he calling you to? And even those small, 
overlooked things over a long period of time to love and serve and care. I encourage you, uh, just know that you're God's handiwork and he has the good things for you, even this week. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you.